Welcome back to American Billiard Radio. Today is Thursday, April 26th, and no, you did not miss an episode. I know three weeks ago I said that I was going to miss a week, and then it turned out to be missing two weeks. I realized that listeners don't really care, they just want to hear something new, but due to extenuating circumstances, I wasn't able to do the show last week. This week, though, I have two interviews for you. I had a chance to talk to Mike DeShane, and actually we spoke just under a week ago, uh, basically about what he's been doing, uh, his win at Super Billiards Expo, a few other things. And then I also sat down and had a conversation with Jerry Forsyth. Jerry has been a part of the pool world, as most people know, for many, many years, and I thought it would be interesting to talk about the history of the Camel Tour from the beginning to the end, uh, that three-year span. Actually, I thought when I was doing research for the show that it had been 20 years ago, but it turned out that I was just confused with what I was reading. It wasn't 20 years ago, but when I discovered that, I figured, all right, well, why not just do it anyway? We do have some news this week. This episode seems to be filled with apologies, and I apologize for not having a better recap of the news from the last two or three weeks, but as it is Thursday the 26th, most people know that AZ Billiards is down right now due to server issues, so I'm kind of stuck with with not being able to get onto the website to get you everything that I would like to get for updates. What I do know is... We have dates and times for the U.S. Open. The 43rd U.S. Open Nine Ball Championship, which will be ran by Barry Hearn and Matchroom Sport, will take place at the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada, from Sunday, April 21st until Friday, April 26th. So mark your calendars, get your reservations early. If the tournament is is half of what Barry Hearn seems to be visualizing, uh, I think it's going to be something you're not going to want to miss. In other news, the Super Billiards Expo took place two weeks ago. Besides the slew of amateur events that I just don't have the results here in front of me and and don't have the time to go over, the Barbox event, the Pro-Am, was won by James Aranis. He seems to be winning just about everything now that he broke through uh, two or three months ago. The men's event was won by Mike DeShane. He beat Danny Olson in the finals. And in the ladies' event, Karen Kaur defeated Brittany Bryant in the finals. The men's and the women's pro events were very unique in that they played down to eight players on each side of the double elimination bracket and then stopped. From there, it was 16-player single elimination, which makes sense. I've seen a number of tournaments ran that way, but... In this one, the eight players from the winner's side stayed in their own eight-player bracket, and the eight players from the one-loss side stayed in their own eight-player bracket. So for players who had lost a match, they only had to play other players who had lost a match. Players who had not lost a match had to play other players who had not lost a match. It seemed like it was kind of a a way to penalize the players who had not lost a match yet. It was it was a very unique format, and I'll talk to Mike a little bit about it in the interview that you will hear here in just a moment. There is one other thing that I wanted to bring up before we got into the interviews. 
Last week was the World Pool Series event, which was won by Dennis Grabe, uh, beat Alex Kazakis in the finals. At the same time as that event was going on was the Four Bears tournament. Now, Four Bears has been running their tournament forever and ever and ever. I have no idea which of the two tournaments was announced first. I'm guessing it was Four Bears, just because... They're a casino. They, you know, the, the dates are, are very limited as to when those events can take place. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here is we have to find some solution to events being scheduled on top of each other. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. There has to be a solution. I don't know what that solution is. Ideally, I would imagine that some sort of central calendar could be used where when you wanted to schedule an event, you referred to this calendar, you saw what event was open. If I were able to resolve the issue, the best way that I can see to do it would be a calendar like that where promoters and tournament directors could enter the information for their own event and based on the added money, just pull numbers out of the air, maybe a thousand dollar added event would do a search in a hundred mile radius and when the promoter or tournament director puts their information in and clicks save it comes back and says just as a warning you're scheduling on top of this event within this range and then up it so five thousand dollar added would be i don't know 500 miles or, or whatever that's the only way that i can see resolving it but i'm going to ask you listeners is there a solution? Is there a better solution? Is there something that we can create? There's a calendar on AZ Billiards, and a lot of people use it, but I know a lot of people don't. So, listeners, give me your opinion. You can email me at azhousepro at gmail.com. I'm very interested in hearing people's suggestions as to how we can resolve this issue. Enough of that. Let's get on to the interview with Mike DeShane. Just as a clarification, the interview with Mike took place on Friday the 20th last week. Uh, there are a couple small audio glitches where his side of the conversation seemed to drop out and I wasn't able to catch them until the interview was done. And also, again, going down the, uh, the road of apologies this week, I refer to the Super Billiards Expo once as the Derby City Classic and Mike refers to it once as Turning Stone. So... Just to clarify, it was Super Billiards Expo, it was not Derby City, and it was not Turning Stone. Without further ado, I give you the fireball, Mike DeShane. All right, everybody, I'm joined now by the winner of the Derby City Classic. What was the exact name of it? Because they changed the name this year, didn't they? I think it's the Diamond something. I'm not sure. Players' Championship. Diamond's Players' Championship? There you go. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah, that'll work. Um, Diamond Players Championship, Mike DeShane. Mike, how's it going today? I'm doing well. And yourself, Mike? Eh, I can't complain. Uh, a little bit cold today, but I'm sure it's a lot warmer than where you're at. Yes, I bet you it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... You know, on one hand, I, I want to say, hey, it's been a while since we've seen your name, but you're not really, you know, you haven't disappeared. You're still out there doing quite a bit, aren't you? 
Well, not really. I mean, I played in uh, probably a handful of tournaments, probably four or five. It's just the ones I'm playing and I'm winning. So I'm, I'm getting lucky and, and my name's kind of uh, out there. So, well, And beyond playing, you're also helping with a regional tour, aren't you? Yeah, so I partnered up with MD Promotions uh, up there in New England. Mark has an incredible tour. He has over 600 members and I believe 30 locations uh, or maybe 30 events in over 15 locations. But he, he's put a lot into it over the past 10 years, I believe. And it's a tour that's going to be around for a while. I know he's got an event just about every weekend. Um, so what yeah. are you doing? What are you doing with Mark? I mean, you know, just a little bit of support showing up, helping him run them, uh, just being involved in pool. You know, I didn't want to disappear from the game completely. Um, so getting involved with him is, is something that I, I saw that could offer a little energy into the game, but not really be too involved. Okay. What made you pick his tour? Um, you know, he just, he, he really has a, a solid foundation up there in New England. A lot of players follow it. Uh, and, and he makes sure that everybody's happy and, and, and that, um, he's constantly trying to grow, which is, which is something that I kind of admire. I know he said something to me the other day in a message that he's got three events this season that are 10,000 added or more. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean is he, he tries to go above and beyond every year you know he's trying to get into a casino up there he's trying you know he's trying he eventually i think wants to put a professional tournament up there and that's one of the reasons why i'm involved as well um he would love to to put it into a casino something similar to turning stone and maybe have his amateur tour and a pro tournament going on at the same time that's the end goal yeah and how long has his tour been around oh that's a good question. I want to say it's over 10 years, Mike. Uh, wow. but I'm not 100% sure. I know I played... It's Actually, it's way over 10 years. I remember playing you know, when I was 18, so... Um, well, way over 12, 15 years. But, um, yeah, he's had it for a minute. Other than helping with the tour, I mean, if you're not playing full-time, uh, what are you doing? Yeah. So, I have a job now. Uh, <laughs> I work for... <laughs> yeah, I know kind of funny but i actually love it um my my co-workers are awesome and, and the company i work for is incredible it's uh renewal by anderson they actually had a booth set up there this past weekend at the super billiards expo which i thought was pretty funny but um i love it like i mean it's, it's an incredible job and and i'm doing it for about six seven months now and i don't see myself leaving is it 40 hours a week it's kind of it's um it's sales, so it's it's over actually over forty hours a week, but it doesn't feel like it because the way you work, you know, you kind of go run appointments and however long it takes, it takes. But uh, it it's you know at the end of the day, you're helping people out, and, and I find it extremely satisfying to know when I leave a home and they've actually bought our windows that they've made the best decision they possibly could. You know, they're happy with it, so it's really fulfilling for me. Now, you talked about how whenever you play in a tournament, you seem to, to do real well in it. Do you think that mm -hmm. having the 9 to 5 has relieved some of that stress that was maybe affecting your game? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, it's changed it tenfold. I mean, it's just I, I don't think about pool as much 
or as often as before. And I haven't really incorporated my lifestyle lately. So just coming back into it, I'm excited, you know, to actually go to a tournament or go to the Super Billions Expo and compete. Uh, before it was more of a job and I felt like I needed to make the money to survive. Now it's like I sat in the seat and, and if I missed, I was okay with it. And if they ran out, I was happy for them. You know, there was no problems going on and, and it was just a different approach that I think has helped me out dramatically. Well, it sounds like it would. I mean, if you could play without the stress of feeling you had to make a ball or had to win a match, you know, yeah. something that they say about the top players is that, you know, they talk about the amount of time that they have to spend practicing the game and working on the game, but you don't have that kind of time. So how do you think it is that you're succeeding like you are without putting 40 hours a week into your game? You know, actually, I, I, I feel for myself, and, and I'm not going to say this for everybody, because I know some people do have to put in the time. Uh, me, on the other hand, it's the complete opposite. You know, I feel like I have a good understanding of the game and I, and I have the ability, which I'm very fortunate for to be able to pick up a cue and play pretty well every time, you know, there's sometimes, yeah, I struggle, of course, but I usually get out of it quickly. Um, for me, if I'm playing every day, I'm kind of overthinking, overanalyzing a lot of, uh, things that I shouldn't with the game. And, and it really affects how I play. It was very simple last week when I went to turning stone, have fun, uh, try to play the best pool I can and don't do anything crazy. You know what I'm saying? As far as that could go in any direction, but as far as play wise, um, just keep it simple. You know, don't, don't, don't do stupid shots and, and just be happy with the way you do end up playing. Well, obviously you did well, but it wasn't just uh super billiards expo. I mean, the last time you were on the show, I believe was in May and since then, you've won the Gotham City event. You took third at the Genki Memorial. I mean, you are we not seeing your name out there when you play in tournaments that you don't do well in, or are you only doing well in the tournaments you play? I'm only doing well in the tournaments I played. In fact, I, those are the only tournaments I have played. A couple, of, a couple of regionals, which I actually won, like Mark's Tour up there, and uh, played in the Carlos Vieira tournament two weeks ago. I won that as well. Uh, you know, just a different approach now, you know, just not as much pressure. And, and uh, like I said, my, my fundamentals have always been there. So I don't need to play to be able to play well, which helps out a lot. And what do you think, what do you think makes that different for you? And I, I know there are other players out there who have explained kind of the same thing, you know, 10 or 15 minutes practice before they head off to a big tournament and they're ready. But, you know, there's others who, as you know, they need at least four hours a day to, to keep their game at yeah. that level. What do you think makes it different yeah. for you? Well, you know, I can tell you the, the one thing about those people who practice for, or the players that practice four or five hours a day, uh, they're always showing results. You know, I think if I keep up this pace, obviously my wins and losses are going to be more spread out. But, uh, you know, that's one thing that's great about the person who practices four or five hours. They're dedicated. You know, they, their life is pool. I think for me, uh, I was just too involved in everything about the game. You know, there was a, there's a point in your career where it's not about playing pool anymore. It's about the politics, it's about sponsorships, it's about everything else. And that kind of stopped me from playing my potential and now that i'm not involved or um 
going to as many tournaments. I just, like I said, I just don't care as much. Do you feel that as much as you were playing, do you feel that anyone who plays that much just kind of naturally gets involved with the politics? They want to see the game get better, so they feel that they want to do everything they can to help that happen. Yeah, I mean, it depends on personality as well. You know, I'm definitely um, more aggressive than most, so uh, more passionate, actually. So I, I was one to, to, to go after more. Uh, more of the politics side of things. I don't think it's for everybody, you know, so I think it's more spread out. It depends on the person themselves. But it does come uh, hand in hand, you know, when you start doing very well in the game, you know, you want to see it go, you want to see it go in a specific direction. And sometimes it just doesn't happen, especially in pool. Well, that's for sure. Um, have you been, have you been keeping up with the game? I mean, as far as what's going on on the pro side of things? Um, little bit i tune into of course your website every now and then uh the forums which you know is hit or miss as far as something um productive or not um that's for sure but yeah <laughs> um but yeah i mean there's really i heard barry hearn took over the u.s open which is incredible um a little disappointed it's in las vegas but i don't see why anything uh why that would affect it in any way um but I think that's going to be amazing putting in the casino. And of course he's probably going to have some unbelievable, unbelievable production behind it. Um, what else is going on? Pat Fleming has taken place of the U S open with his own event, which is great. Pat is dedicated to this sport and, um, and can only do wonders for it. So anything he does, kudos to him. Um, other than that, I mean, what, what else is going on? I'm not, I don't even know. Well, I mean, those are the two main things. Um, you know, as, yeah. as far as this weekend, the World Pool Series is back in action. Have you seen anything? Have yep. you seen the brackets there? Yeah, you know, I, there's one thing. Listen, I, so stepping away from the game, I support anybody who wants to do something with it. And they only got 32 players this weekend. So I think they need to, to sit down and, and readjust. You know, I, New York is a tough spot. For anybody to go it's extremely expensive i tried explaining this to the owner of the pool hall uh steinway last week and it's just like you're stuck 2000 before you even pick up a queue and i don't know what the payouts are i would have loved to go to that event it's three hours from my house but i'm not gonna go and compete against the best players in the world and hope to break even you know which is that's one thing that i've changed as well in this game you know, I noticed when I was looking over the brackets, I, I started looking at the American players. None of the top American players are there this time. I, I don't, I don't understand if they're trying to make a point or. I mean, I know some of them are at forebears. I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. There's probably a bar table going, bar table event going on right now that pays huge to first place, and 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 it was. I don't know. You know, who knows? Really. I, I I don't understand. You know, I had a conversation with Shirley uh, Ang from the Whirlpool series. She's kind of stepped in to do some things with Darren, and and she said mm -hmm. she doesn't know the answer to it as to why the American players are just not supporting the event. I mean, I understand the the cost, but don't the European players have that same cost? Um, you know, I, from from stepping away from it as well, I think that there's more support 
towards the European players and the Asian players than there are the Americans, you know, as far as sponsorships or, um, plus there, you know, it's, their approach is a lot different. Um, we're more money driven here in the United States. So I guess that the expenses kind of, um, are something we really look at prior to going to any event. I think it's more pride for Europe to come over here and win something that, you know, an applicant's putting on or that's going to be recognized in the pool world. Okay. I guess that's fair. Um, are you still giving lessons? No, I really don't give that that many. Occasionally I give a lesson. But other than that, nothing. So you're just working 40 hours a week and winning tournaments every weekend? Yeah, I got a little real estate up in Maine. Um, always involved with that and uh, working and then occasional tournament. Well, now you say occasional, but you mentioned that you won one two weeks ago, and we know that you won one a week ago, and you're playing in one again this weekend. I am at one this weekend, yeah. So here's the, the funny thing is, you know, as far as tournaments, a lot of the directors kind of set them up so they're close to each other. It just happens to be, or just happens to be that uh, Paul Schofield of Gold Crown Billiards in Erie, Pennsylvania, puts on the same invitational tournament every year. And it's usually the week after or before uh, the Super Billiards Expo. So it's something, you know, I've won it multiple times in the past. So I told him I would uh, commit to it. And of course I came. What, uh, what kind of tournament is it? I mean, how many players, that sort of thing? So it's a 64 uh, man bracket, but it's, it's a unique tournament where he has a quadruple elimination I actually love this style or the format. Um, usually the better person wins and it's, it's nine ball, but the way he racks them is it doesn't matter how they rack. If you make a ball on the break, no matter who breaks, which it is alternate break gets a shot after the break. They don't have to make a ball. So it's a unique tournament. And the way the brackets are set up, it's like the better players are always going to get to the final bracket where it's just a single elimination tournament, eight players. It's a, it's a good tournament. And maybe it's just because I, I do well in it. I don't know. Well, I mean, quadruple elimination. I, I can't imagine it. Uh, it's real easy to knock you out of a tournament or to, to beat you four <laughs> times in a tournament. Yeah, yeah. Actually, last year I lost in the finals to Hatch. Hatch is here, so he, he's playing well, or he always plays well. So he's um, competition for sure. You mentioned the unique format. Have you ever played in a tournament the the format of that Super Billiards Expo event you played last weekend? No, that has never happened. I don't even remember playing in that tournament and using that format. But I talked to Alan about it because I was just curious. Hey, when did you ever play in a tournament like this? He says that back in the day, that's how they used to do it. And the way he set up the payment structure is that if you're on the loser side, the final 16, or winner side, final 16, the winners will get paid more. So I kind of like that. But... You know, it's tough. Like Jason and, and Shane, they played in the first draw at the final 16 on the winner's side. You know, one of them's going home. That's that's tough because they play the best, you know? Well, and I mean, it was brutal on your side because you look at the, the players you had to go through to get to the finals. And mm -hmm. then, you know, on the one loss side, sure, they had a tough road, but it didn't include Jason and Earl. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, there's a good thing. I mean, Danny Olsen plays awesome, and he's going to be around for a very long time. 
but as far as the best players in the world, I mean, Jason's playing remarkable. Shane always plays remarkable. There's a good chance, you know, those guys always get to the finals, one of them. So like, that tournament, that format helps the, the loser's bracket for somebody to get to the finals. And, that, and I'm not trying to take any credit away from Danny because he played extremely well. Um, and anybody who would have got to that spot played extremely well to get there. You're saying usually, you know, whoever loses in the hot seat match makes it back to the tournament, especially if it's a Filipino or if it's Shane or if it's Shaw. You know, they're just they're just on top of their games right now. They're extremely dominant. No, you're you're right, and I do think that you know those players. You know, there's a reason why the the usual suspects are there at the end of each tournament. They're they're playing great. Um, at, you know, you talk about Danny Olson, who while he's been around for a while, he still kind of seems like one of the younger players that's coming up in the game. Um, I noticed when you played in the the tour championship for the New England Nine Ball Tour, you played uh, that Lucas Werner in the finals. I mean, he's another young player who's coming up. Um, what do you make of the young talent coming coming up in the game right now? You know, it's a very it's a very um, delicate spot right now for the for the young players, and the reason being is it's tough to commit to a pro tour or the lack thereof and, and trying to support something, you know what I'm saying? Trying to support it. Uh, it's very easy to go into the bar table route or to the amateur route where you can go 18 times and never get kicked out. You know, what, what do you do? And you make good money and it's just extremely, it, it's tough for the amateurs. I don't know. The future of this game is tough. I don't, I don't, it's very tough for me to see. You've mentioned a couple of times going the bar table route. Are you referring to you know the events that usually take place in the Midwest, where it's it's yeah. high entry fee and and big payouts, big Calcuttas, that sort of thing? Well, look at it. I mean, perfect example is this weekend. You have the Four Bears going on, or you have the World Pool Series in New York. The World Pool Series. I mean, from what I've heard Darren talk about is. You know, they're trying to make it the future of pool, having a production behind it, trying to get it on television, so on and so forth. But obviously, players are going to the forebears because expenses, payouts, the competition, it's too tough to survive trying to play on the World Pool Series against the best players in the world. When you go and play on a bar table and miss a lot less balls because it's on a seven-foot table, especially at Valley where the pockets are huge, uh, and possibly win maybe more for first place in that bar table tournament than the world pool series is going to pay. I mean, what do you do, Mike? I understand saying, you know, this is what I have to do to make ends meet, but when do you take a step back and say, this is what I'm going to do for the future of the game? Whose job is that for that? The player or the director or promoter? Whose job is that? Well, I think to a degree, it's everyone's. I agree with that, but yeah, I don't know. That's a tough question. I can't answer it. Yeah, and I'm not <laughs> saying that they should take money out of their own mouths every opportunity, but and also, I I don't know. You know, everybody says they're they're going to do amazing things, and you need to come out and support us and. You know, if you came out and supported everybody who 
claimed they were going to do something amazing, you'd be broke in a hurry. So, you know, I understand the, the difficulty. You know, from having this conversation, and, and you and I have talked in the past on the phone and at tournaments and that sort of thing, you seem a lot more calm. You know, you you seem... It, it's kind of like a Zen thing. You know, you, you've got a fiery personality. And yeah. I think sometimes that's gotten in your way, but I don't, I don't hear that right now. Uh, do you feel like you're in a better place? Of course, you know, working, being uh, more stable, just more of a foundation under me. Um, I like the spot I'm in right now. Not gonna lie, you know, I like working and I like being able to go to a tournament, having the freedom to be able to go to a tournament every now and then. Uh, it has definitely made me a lot more calm and uh, just changed my approach, you know, a lot less focusing on winning and just having fun in life in general. So three tournament with three weekends in a row playing tournaments. Uh, what do you have coming up that you're going to be playing in? I think I'm off. You know, I did see a pretty good tournament in Vegas next month, but I don't think I'll be able to get a time off work. You know, you got to schedule it correctly. You know, you don't want to abuse your privileges. Um, but there is one Vivian Viverell's in, in Las Vegas, the 16th to the 20th, I believe that looks good. Um, other than that, I don't know of anything coming up. I haven't really checked the board, or I don't even know if I want to go to a tournament. You know, it's actually within a certain distance, too. I don't want to jump on a plane and go to California and play in a tournament. It's going to be around New England, you know, Pennsylvania. The U.S. Open is probably the furthest I'll go. Well, Mike, you know, it's good to hear that. It's good to hear where you're at right now. You know, it's. It's nice. It's nice to hear that that you're in a good place and and you know you're doing well without without relying on pool to fill whatever it was filling for you in the past. Yeah, no, it feels good to be there. I I, I feel like I am there, so uh, I appreciate it that you're taking notice. Yeah, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing you out there. You know, maybe just the U.S. Open will be the next time I see you out there playing, but I'm I'm looking forward to it. I appreciate you taking some time today, and I'll let you get ready for your tournament today. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. Talk to you later, Mike. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right, that was Mike DeShane. I'm going to move on to the interview that I did with Jerry Forsyth. The main goal of this interview was to recap the three-year span of the camel tour again i looked at dates incorrectly so i thought it was a a prime time to have this conversation but even with the dates being wrong i think it was a good conversation and i hope you feel the same way so here you go jerry forsyth all right i'm very happy to be joined now by my partner in crime jerry forsyth uh, Jerry, how are things out? Okay. What's that? You shouldn't. You shouldn't be all that happy, really. <laughs> and why is that? Well, for one thing, you've got to spend the next twenty minutes on the phone talking to me, and it's not like we don't do that enough. <laughs> you may have a point, but we always talk about different things. That's true. This time, I want to talk about the camel yes. trip. Ah, uh, yes. Good old camel tour. 20 years ago. 
And and I thought that it was basically 20 years ago this month, and that's because I'm an idiot and I can't, I just don't understand technology, but that's all right. It actually started with a bleed-in in in 1995 when when Camel was ushering Mike Siegel around um, to regional events, and uh, uh, winners got to play Mike Siegel. And uh, they got a T-shirt saying, I beat Mike Siegel if they beat him. I think they gave away one of those shirts. I'm not sure. (laughs) And do you have any idea how that relationship got started? Well, Camel was looking into all sorts of alternative sports. They were uh, uh, sponsoring uh, all kinds of motorcycle racing, uh, both flat track and dirt and enduro and motocross, I mean, everything. And um, they knew that uh, beer companies had been sponsoring pool, because remember, Coors had been a big beer sponsor and Miller had been a big uh, beer sponsor and Bush uh, had been the title sponsor of the APA. So where there's beer, there's cigarettes. And so they sort of dangled their toes in with Siegel. And through that, they got introduced to Don Mackey, who was heading the PBT, or it was the PBTA at the time, I believe. So uh, Don, of course, could... Don's the best salesman in the world. So for 1996, uh, the following year, uh, R.J. Reynolds agreed to uh, put up a half the prize money for the year for the tour. That's a pretty significant sponsor. Yeah, well, and it was what we've been looking for. You know, an out-of-industry sponsor, someone, someone other than Brunswick, who had been sponsoring just about everything up till then. Um. And it was an answer to a dream, but the dream fell apart that very year when uh, the PBT didn't come up with their half of the sponsorship, and the uh, last four events of the year, the players didn't get paid their prize money. How long was the PBT uh, going before this all happened? I believe they formed around 91 or 92. Although I don't think that Mackey was with them at that time. I think he came in in later. But they were a successful tour. Why were they not able to come up with their end of the bargain if they held the tour already? I mean, it's not like they were going after new sponsors. Well, yeah, they were. That was one of the problems. They pretty much had to circle through a lot of different sponsors every year. Um, the sponsorship wasn't, you know, real beneficial to the sponsors. Um, but with, um, the, with, with, with Reynolds behind them, um, they got, they were, they were on TV. I believe they'd already been on TV for a couple of years, but those contracts were going bad because the PBT hadn't been paying the production costs like, they had agreed to, so they kept going through one network after another. Um, started out with ESPN, and I know they were on, I think, TNT for a while, and a couple of other Fox Sports, uh, a couple of other channels before they finally burned that bridge completely down. But by that time, uh, the laws had changed, and tobacco companies couldn't advertise on TV, so 
Reynolds was really the perfect partner. Um, but when they when things fell apart in '96, uh, the PBT parted ways with with um, Camel, and Camel came back the next year and announced the Camel Pro Series, and um, they didn't say PBT players could play. They just didn't say they couldn't. So the PBT players showed up, and, the, and it continued. The series continued. Uh, this time under the full weight and sponsorship of R.J. Reynolds, which was actually this was managed by SMS, the sports uh, marketing group of um, R.J. Reynolds. Uh, they wanted they they made a big deal out of saying this is not R.J. Reynolds. This is a separate company called SMS. But SMS was headquartered at R.J. Reynolds in Winston-Salem. And um, I think it was a pretty much an arm's reach business relationship. And how did the, how did the PBT and how did the players react to Camel starting up? I mean, was there a, was there a bad taste in the players' mouths after things failing the year before? Well, yeah, there was, although that was more directed toward Mackey because he kept promising to pay them at the next event and he never would pay them. Um, they were they still had a pretty good taste in their mouth for R.J. Reynolds because Camel had paid them their money. Um, so when Camel came back the next year and said, okay, it's all our money, you know it's going to be good, and uh, plus they were putting on this uh, $50,000 bonus at the end of the year for whatever player collected the most points uh, during the series. So it's it's pretty hard to stay away from that, and I don't think, Mackey ever put up that much of a bitch about people playing in it because he didn't have an alternative for him. And, um, but, but he told them that, well, the players came to believe that, um, the reason everything fell apart was because, um, part of RJ Reynolds responsibility was to put butts in the seats in the stands, you know, do a lot of advertising and draw people in and if you'll remember, you and I went to these camel tour events, and we'd go to local pool rooms, and nobody in the local pool rooms even knew there was a pro event in town. So it was easy to say that R.J. Reynolds had not done their job. They had not done enough advertising uh, to create interest to draw people to the arenas. And the arenas were deserted. It was, it was sad. And most of the events back then were in pool rooms. Well, not the camel events. I mean, they did have some in pool rooms, like at Shooters in Olathe uh, and at Music City. But they also had them in places like Columbus, Ohio, in convention centers and in, in Denver at the, at the Merchandise Mart. And, uh, I mean, they, they got some big-ass venues that, you know, you could just toss echoes across. There were so few people in. <laughs> New Orleans, they got the New Orleans Convention Center. You know, what jumps out at me, you've got eight events. Um, wasn't there a bonus fund at the end of the year, like 300000 There was uh, 50000 to the winner. There may have been a to the total bonus fund, I don't remember. And then how much do you, I mean, each event was 75000 in prize money. That all didn't come from entry fees. Oh, no. That came from R.J. Reynolds. 
that was their sponsorship. And and I guess what I'm getting at is we've talked for a while about the idea that if a company wanted to buy professional nine ball, which you know, I don't know what they would do with it, but if a company wanted to buy professional nine ball and and then by association professional pool, it would cost about a million dollars. It sounds like RJ Reynolds spent more than that each year. Oh, I'm sure they did because they had a huge staff and and they had all these ancillary activities like they they had um oh a famous motorcycle um these 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 guys who rebuilt motorcycles on t v and turned them into custom hogs um they built one for camel the camel freaking gave away to a a ticket holder at a at a camel pro series event. You know, they didn't waste any money. Uh, I mean, they didn't spare any money except on advertising. I mean, if you think about it, you know, everything, like you mentioned, everything that that people seem to think we need right now to really get the game going. You know, people will, will have these pipe dreams about, boy, you know, we need a an outside company that is interested and can throw some money at it. And boy, it'd be great if they had a full-time staff that could promote the events. I mean, it sounds like they had everything and. Yep. Been there, done that. <laughs> and I don't want to get into the downfall of the tour just yet, but you know, what was the reaction of the players while this was going on and going strong? Well, it was every, everything was good. Um, you know, everybody was getting paid. Everybody was. I mean, they were. They wanted the, the. They wanted more prize money. Of course, players always want more prize money because you know if you didn't come in in the top ten or twelve, it's not a good trip. Um, just like always, um, but uh, the top guys, they they were making some bucks those days. Well, I mean, they talk now that if you don't come in the top four or the top six, then you're not really making your money. So it sounds like they had it better off then than they do now. I'm I'm thinking they did, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So eight events. So roughly, what, every six weeks? No, they, it was like during a season. So I think it was more like every three or four weeks. Because I remember I was traveling an awful lot. And then there were still other tournaments at the time. You know, there was there was Reno, there was the U.S. Open. Um, did did the Camel Tour provide that boost to the sport itself, you know, as far as other events? Hmm. Good question, because we had just gone through the die-off of events um, from the PBT that, that, that killed so many of the weekly events, um, like Bioe's uh, event in Lexington. Um, I don't think so. I don't think those, those began, I don't think those were ready to come back yet. Plus they couldn't compete with Camel. Right. It just, you know, it seemed that back then, there were $1,000 added events every weekend 
somewhere. You know, if you were a top player, you could always find a $1,000 or $2,000 added tournament to play in. There were more small uh, regional events because there were, well, there were more pool runs. They used that to compete for customers. We're here to talk about the Camel Tour, but I, I guess I'm interested back then in, in what the differences were between then and now. I mean, were pool rooms putting up the money? I know a lot of those tours appeared to be sponsored by Q companies. Most of them were sponsored by Q companies. I mean, the McDermott Tour was, I believe they were still going strong in the late 90s. And, of course, you had the Viking Tour. And those both ran on the fact that you could give a, a promoter enough product that he could turn around and um, give to the room owner, uh, give the room owner, say, $5,000 worth of retail product for $3,000 in added money, and it's a win-win situation. Um, It, it so you you did have those those large regional events and they paid out pretty good money. And you had the Joss tour, you know. What do you think was the Still downfall do of that? Well, the McDermott tour, I think, died when John McChesney died of brain cancer. Uh, there was just nobody who could take it over and and give it the time and and the effort that that he did. Um, and you know the same thing happened with the Viking tour uh, Janice decided there were greener pastures and there were he did much better after he uh, left that Viking tour alright so so we've got the camel tour going strong um, 97, yeah. 98 um, yep now, what was Mackey doing during all this? Well, uh, he was he was there. He was representing his players, the BBT, at the events, and it was a um, golly, let's agree to be friends kind of kind of deal. There weren't there weren't any open arguments that I that I ever caught. Um, until after the lawsuit was filed in, I guess that was 99. And what was that all about? Uh, the PBT accused the um, camels, Camel Pro Billionaires, R.J. Reynolds, with basically stealing their tour. Um, they took their sponsors. Uh, they took their players. And uh, they just went on without the PBT. And um, what was the linchpin of the suit? That wasn't exactly the linchpin of the suit. But, oh, it was that they had planned on doing this uh, from the beginning. They had planned on knocking the PBT out of the uh, uh, scene by not putting butts in seats and causing the PBT to go broke. What was the end game going to be, though? I mean, what were they hoping was going to happen if they won a suit against the people who were adding more than a million dollars a year? 
Well, they were hopeful of getting five to ten million dollars and being able to fund their own tour with that kind of money. Uh, they could get things moving. They could get enough momentum going to 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 keep a tour going for a while. Uh, unfortunately, they only got six hundred thousand dollars. But things were going well on the tour still when the suit was filed, wasn't weren't they? Yes, uh, uh, but at the same time, the law changed again uh, for Camel, and. Uh, they could no longer advertise in magazines, um, among other things. And there just wasn't enough exposure for them to continue with the pool. Pool had been getting them exposure that now it wasn't going to get them. It wasn't. It, they couldn't get on TV anymore. They couldn't be in magazines. You know, it's just, it didn't make sense. Plus, the guys whose money, who they were putting money in their pockets with suddenly had turned against them and were taking them to court and suing them. Well, I guess that's where my question comes. Which came first? Did the law change first or did the lawsuit come first? Oh, boy, 20 years ago, I just don't remember. All this stuff sort of came together, though. And the players were behind the idea of thanking R.J. Reynolds by suing them? Well, they weren't, they weren't trying to thank them. <laughs> <laughs> they, were try, they were trying to bankroll their own tour because they did not like the fact that now they were basically uh, not in control of their own fates, R.J. Reynolds was. Uh, and they wanted, there was a big desire back then among the players for them to own their own tour. You know, that's something that we hear players talk about still. They pretty much do now. I mean, don't they own their own game? I mean, who who else owns it? Uh, I guess so, uh, although they sure did like it when... Uh, Someone else came in named Trudeau to own it. Yeah, well, that was more uh, a case of how big his checkbook was, though, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. That's the thing. It's it's if your checkbook's big enough, Pool's got to love you because Pool doesn't have a big checkbook. But really. Prior to R.J. Reynolds starting the Camel Tour, they were the big checkbook. Yes, and the they were the big checkbook with sponsors. So the laws change. So basically the tour uh, was successful for, what, three years? Yes. Okay. Then the laws change. Um now, prior to that, and, and what I'm getting to is a lot of people feel that the end of the Camel Tour was Earl and Corey in Milwaukee. Well, that was just interesting. <laughs> um, there was no TV there when that happened, so it could not have you know, shown really badly on the game itself. It was such a surprise um, when Corey came with that soft break 
And he'd, he had, Earl was not the first person he'd been doing it to. They'd been talking about it all week because he'd been, he'd been playing and he'd been winning with this soft break. And Earl had said, well, he won't do that with me. Well, sure, sure enough, he did it with Earl. But Earl actually was not complaining about Corey's soft break. He was complaining that um, Scott Smith, the, the tournament director, was giving Corey the kinds of racks that a soft break would work on. Now, he was also yelling at Corey about the soft break. If you wouldn't do this, this wouldn't, we, we wouldn't be here. If you just hit the balls like a man. But really, it, it, what, what got what, what the boiling point of that came down to was uh, Scott Smith racked a rack of balls and backed off from the table and said, break them. And Earl said, no, I'm not going to break that rack the way you've got them racked. And... Um, Scott said, okay, that's fine with me. You're out of here. Well, yeah, Scott wouldn't put up with anything like that. I mean, what was... I mean, we've all gotten used to the soft break. You know, it's not looked at favorably, but, I mean, what was the what was the general talk during the tournament when all of a sudden you've got Corey, who at the time hadn't won anything major, had he? No, the first two days of the event, people were saying that'll never work. The third day of the event, they said it'll still never work, but he's getting awful lucky with it. Well, but the next, you know, but he was making a ball every time and getting shape on the. He was making the one ball every time and getting shape on the two. And you know, you just can't deny success. And. uh, uh Earl's objection was it's not the way you play the game. You don't play it with a soft break. Did other players try to duplicate it back then, or were they just thrown off by it? Oh, there were people on the on the side tables trying to practice it, you know, trying to figure out what he was doing and how he was doing it. Although it was fairly obvious. If, if, if you just watched him, you could you could see he was hitting the balls with perfect speed uh, to make the, to, to shoot the one ball into the, I think it was into the side pocket and the two ball at the time was being racked in the back and it was coming all the way back table. It was sitting about three quarters of the way down the table, straight into a corner pocket. At least that's the way I remember it. Now that kind of happened. I, I mean, the, the tour, the tour was pretty much on its last legs when that happened anyway, wasn't it? Yeah, because that would have been in 98 or 99, excuse me, 99, 90 or, or, or 99, yeah. Yeah, it was at Romine's Billiards up in Milwaukee. That was it, yeah. Now, 99 was the last year of the tour, right? Yes, except for one event that Camel did in in the year 2000 that was not a Camel Pro Series event. It was a special thing they did with the APA out in Vegas at their national championships. Now, was that the 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 four player thing they did with uh, Miz and Jeanette and and Ming and Mike? No, because. Um, 
Efren Reyes won it and, and won $30,000 for it. Um, and Mika Eminen was there as well. So I think it was like a, a, a regular tournament that they just ran side by side. Yeah, here we go. Because Efren was first, then Mika, then Roger Griffiths, then Troy Frank, then David Matlock and George Sansusi. Uh, two two uh, Japanese players were next to Okamura and Takahashi. And uh, then it goes on down from there. Let's see. Jean- Jeanette Lee came in 17 through 24. By the way, guess who won the last official Camel Pro Series event in 99? I'm sure I could find out, but I'll bet you know. Alan Hopkins. Wow. You mentioned um, that final event in Mika and, and the Japanese players. I mean, Poole was yeah. doing so well then that they were coming over from overseas, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, there were a lot more events. And I know you've talked about how that was kind of the time when... Um, Ralph transitioned from, I think you've referred to him as some players felt they almost had a buy in the beginning. And then all of a sudden, by the end of that tour, he was the monster that he became. He improved so rapidly. Now he'd already won a world championship before he, he ever came over, but it was, I, I, he, he did not play well. The first, few camel events at all um but then he really started moving up and um i don't know if he just got back into the game that he had in other places of the world and he'd been knocked out of it by coming to america and the travel had screwed with him and the conditions had screwed with him or what, but whatever it was, he adapted, and oh boy, what a player he became. So the tour was riding high for probably three years. Um, right. The laws changed. Yep. Professional pool basically sued R.J. Reynolds. So, yes. you know, that's the final year of the tour, and then they had that one other event, but the lawsuit wasn't wasn't settled by that time. How, and how did that whole thing end? I mean, I remember being at a tournament in Vegas where Mackey walked in and, you know, proudly said we won, but did they really win? They really won. I was in the courtroom every day. It was in Greensboro, North Carolina, my hometown of all places. And this was the first lawsuit that Big Tobacco had ever lost in any courtroom. And they've been sued for, you know, causing cancer and, I mean, some really big stuff and had walked away unscathed. And, and here we had a jury of, I mean, North Carolina is the tobacco capital of the world. There had to be tobacco farmers on that jury. And uh, they were yet, they were found uh, guilty. They were found at harm, although they just didn't penalize them very much. They only penalized them 600000 The trial was just the strangest thing every day going in and listening to Jim Rempe and Nick Varner and uh, people like that on the stands. And um, uh, the lawyers were very 
very high powered and uh it was quite a colorful courtroom scene um but when they only won the 600 grand everybody pretty much knew that it was a meaningless victory and in in winning the suit the PBT proved to a jury that the whole time Camel had intended on basically pulling professional pool out from under the PBT. Stealing pro pool from them, yeah. So the PBT and Mackey won 600000 How did that get chopped up? I mean, attorneys, I'm sure, got a portion of it. I'm sure the attorneys got a portion of it. I never talked to any player who got a penny of it. I'm sure that Mackey was, well, that this is, and I'm not sure. I'm guessing that Mackey was under lawsuits filed by te- television production companies. I'm sure he owed money up the kazoo. Uh, <laughs> so I imagine that went to keep him out of jail. Do you think, based on the three years of success that the tour had, had the laws not changed, do you think we would still have a camel tour right now? No. I think it would have died that year anyway, simply due to the fact that we could not draw any fans, couldn't get any attention, could not get a local newspaper to come and write up the event. Even with... $75,000 prize funds. Right. And a, and a major name behind them. Right. But that was what part of the problem. The, the, the newspapers, they didn't want to be associated with tobacco companies either. And, and there was more going on. I mean, I, I remember hearing little bits and pieces of, of different players trying to, to band together. And, and what were they trying to, to accomplish well, there were so many, I, I don't remember what, exactly what you're, you're referring to, but there were so many little irritations that went on that would drive you absolutely crazy. Like on the events that, had, that did have television, I think the first year there was some television coverage, and then local TV would sometimes come out and cover it. And... Larry Kiger, the guy who ran it at the, at, the, at the players' meetings, would say, okay, now look, we've got TV here this time. So I don't care what you guys take out there to smoke at the table. Sure, we'd like it to be camel. We're putting the money in your pocket. But if you've got to smoke Marlboros, fine, smoke Marlboros. But here on the table is a bunch of empty camel boxes. Just put your Marlboros in the camel boxes. And they wouldn't do it. They'd, they'd go out there on TV and lay a box of Marlboros down on the table. And that really irked, that really irked RJR. With, uh, with so many pool rooms being non-smoking now and casinos, just the idea that there'd be an ashtray next to a, a, a player's chair at a tournament is kind of hard to visualize. Yeah, a lot has changed. In the, a lot has changed in the last twenty years. Pool uh, tournaments used to be very, very smoky. So, I guess the, the final thing that I'm curious about: um, 
the camel, R.J. Reynolds getting involved was basically the dream that professional pool had, the, the same dream that they yep. have now. What do yeah. you think it would take for something like that to repeat itself? There's got to be a way for the production costs to be repaid in additional business. And that's the trouble. You know, the, you'd, you'd think when uh, Bush Beer was sponsoring the APA, you would think that their sales would have accelerated among uh, amateur players. But it it just didn't not enough to move the needle, and it's the same it's the same old thing. Same thing happened with Coors. Um, you you just don't get enough sales increase to move the needle. So so why keep doing it? If you could find a company now who could find a way where sponsoring pool would increase their sales, then you you've got a winning situation. But it's it's got to be a win win. You can't have a sponsor who's pouring millions of dollars into your sport at a loss. That's, that's just not sustainable. Well, and it seems like when people dream about, boy, you know, we need to get somebody from outside the industry who's got deep pockets, there's never, they never continue that idea to say, and this is what we can do to help them. Yeah, it's uh, and that's the thing. It's going to require a lot of effort on the part of the players to to seduce another big name sponsor. Well, how do you think? How do you think other sports do it? I mean, there's there's so many fringe sports out. I mean, you and I have talked about disc golf. I mean, they've got they don't have sponsors from outside of the industry, do they? Not yet. No. No, but at disc golf, the people who make the disc can afford to sponsor these things because they're selling these discs for fifteen to thirty dollars a piece, and those discs get lost in the woods. Those discs get lost in the creeks and the lakes and the rivers. I mean, they don't last that long. So, you know, you, you've got something that has to be replaced. And same thing in golf. You've got to replace your balls and your club and your bags and your shoes and all that. I've got the same pool cue I've had for 30 years. Well, that's because you never make a ball with it. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get much wear. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it was an interesting an interesting part of, of billiards history. Um, you know, it wasn't, you know, like we've talked about the IPT, it wasn't the only time that that players thought they had something great. You know, we we know that when the IPT came out, a number of players basically changed their way of lives based on the money that they thought was coming in. Did that happen during the Camel Tour? No, because the Camel Tour, unlike Mr. Trudeau, never stood up at the first players meeting and said, I'm guaranteeing you a hundred thousand dollars a year 
minimum income to each and every one of you players, and I'm guaranteeing that for the next four years, you can take it to the bank. And what was it? Three events later, he was dead. And in the meantime, people had gone out and bought houses and SUVs, all because he stood up there and, and made the promise, and he was very believable. There wasn't any shaking in his voice or any of that stuff. Well, Camel never did that. You know, Camel said, you can come here and you can either be a winner or you can be a loser according to the way you play. I would comment on, you know, the game being in a much smaller place than it was back then. But, you know, we always have that next uh, brass ring. And, and you and I both know that brass ring right now is named Barry Hearn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, luckily he's got he's got twenty years of <laughs> dependability behind him. More than twenty years. Well, and he loves pool. Yeah, yeah, he does. Well, Jerry, that's your other line. It is. All right, I'll let you go. I appreciate your time. All right, I appreciate you uh, giving me a call, and I'll talk to you soon. I'm sure. All right, thanks. <laughs> okay, bye bye. All right, everybody, that's the show for this week. Appreciate you taking the time to listen. I promise you I'll have a a show next week. I'm not sure who will be on it yet, but I, I do promise you you'll have another show to listen to next week. Thanks for tuning in this week. Bye, everybody.